Hi there, welcome back to Zealous Talks. We're continuing today talking about our third value, disciple making. And you're listening to Neeraj on this talk called Whenever, Wherever. So last week uh, was our first week on our third core value, disciple making. And last week we, we looked at how to be a disciple of Christ and what we briefly discussed was the meaning of a word disciple and we kind of discussed that and we said a disciple is someone who's a follower or pupil of a teacher, leader or philosopher. A disciple should be one of his essential characteristics, his or hers, a disciplined learner, which means that if we have to be disciples, we have to be disciplined and we have to be teachable. We then looked at Matthew's gospel where Jesus commands us as, as his disciples to deny ourselves Luke adds, deny yourselves daily. Take up your cross and follow him, follow Jesus. And as we pondered over that through the week, God certainly challenged me and convicted me to follow him wholeheartedly because there were areas in my life where I felt I wasn't doing that. And I hope the same holds true for all of us. This evening we're looking at the second part of disciple making. It's divided into two parts, mirror Christ, which we looked at the first time. Now we're looking at multiply lives. As a church, this is a core value for us. And there's a certain order to that. We've seen God-centeredness first, community second, and disciple making third. And we look at that later. And as much as it's important for us as a church to have that as a core value, I believe it's important for each and every one of us as followers of Christ. It should be an integral part of our lives to make disciples and at the same time to be discipled. It's a hand-in-hand process. So our key verse for today again is taken from the Gospel of Matthew. This time we'll be looking at the last chapter. So we're jumping from the 16th last week, right now to the last chapter, chapter 28, and we read from verses 16 to 20, but even before we dive in, the passage that we're going to look at is famously referred to, as some of us know, the Great Commission. Have you heard of that? Yeah? Fantastic. I'm going to keep doing this. (laughs) So it is important for us to understand the meaning of the word commission. The dictionary says the word commission means an instruction, command, or role given to a person or a group of people. The great commission in this context is the instruction of the resurrected Christ to his disciples to spread his teachings to all the nations of the world. Therefore, if we think about it, the Great Culmination, the Great Commission is the culmination. I mean, it, it comes towards the end of what Jesus says. It's the last thing that he says before he departs to be the Father. So it's the focal point of the entire gospel. Make disciples of all nations, he says. So it has utmost importance. And these are the last words, like we said, of Jesus before he departs to the Father. So they have a lot of weightage. 
we'll look at that aspect in a bit. So now, without further ado, let's look at the key verse. So we were reading from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, and we're reading from the ESV version this evening. Again, uh, there are certain words I've underlined, and we're just going to look at that as we dive in to the details, but here's what the verse says. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's look to God so that he can help us understand this very weighty command that he's given us. Dear Lord, dear Father, as we come into your presence this evening, thank you for this wonderful evening once again and that we are able to gather once again in your fold and look at your word. Help us, Lord, to consider, understand, and try to apply these words into our lives. Help us and give us strength, Lord. Open our hearts, open our minds to receive your word. And even as I stand here, Lord, to deliver what you've laid on my heart, Father, I pray that you use me. The words be your words and not my words, Father. Help us to understand and help us to apply, Father, what you've said in your great commission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want us to notice the first word in verse 16 is now. Which means something has gone on prior to, the, to what's happened in our key verse. That will give us some context. So I'll just give you a brief background into that. Just before this, if we read the book of Matthew, we see that Jesus has gone on to take up the cross. He's been crucified for our sins. He, was, he died and he buried. He was buried and he rose again on the third day, which means he was resurrected. He has resurrected. We'd also seen in last week's message that he'd already foretold this to his disciples in many occasions. One such example was from Matthew 16:21, where he says, where it's written, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now we know Peter responded to that saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And we also know Jesus' response to that, that Jesus rebuked him and said, Get behind me, Satan, your hindrance to me, for you are setting your mind on the things of God, but not on things of God, but on the things of man. You're not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. And we looked at that last week because this was a context to what we discussed last week as well, when Jesus tells his disciples to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. So now these words that we're looking at, these are the words of Jesus who resurrected to his disciples just before he goes away to God the Father. If we think about it, these are Jesus' last words. What then could be the implications? We must therefore understand that the last words of any man are important. 
they can be likened to a will. And if someone just before going off, passing away, tells us something or has a will, we hold it very close to our heart. We try to obey it to the utmost. How much more if this man that we're talking about is none other than God himself, the resurrected God, we must take heed and obey. In the book of Matthew, Matthew's theme is to present Christ as king. And in the end, the king has commissioned. So it has a lot of importance. And, I, and I'm harping on this because it does make a difference. So based on the key verse, let us look at four steps to being a disciple maker. First one we've discussed last week was we have to be teachable disciples. Second is submit to Christ's authority. After that, the question comes, what do we do next? We follow Christ's pattern. And lastly, we take comfort. Now we'll discuss each of those as we go along. So we'll take the first one, the first aspect. We have to be teachable disciples. We've learned that disciple makers, but you know, to be disciple makers, first we have to be disciples ourselves. So there is a chain of discipleship essentially. That is a biblical model. That is how many of the disciples also came to be where they are and where they were. And that's what's been written for them and about them in the book. They were discipled by none other than Jesus himself. Many were discipled by other disciples and that's how it carried on. So if you look at this verse that we're reading, that's from the last chapter in the book of Matthew, when Jesus has risen from the dead, now he calls 11 who remain. For three years, these disciples dedicated their lives to follow him. They gave up their work, they gave up their vocation, their family, their life, they followed him. This has all gone on in the prior 27 chapters. The assumption here, therefore, is that the disciples have gone through the discipleship themselves before they are being called to be disciple makers. The event is at the end of the book. It's the last chapter. After Jesus had been a teacher, a friend, a mentor, a coach, all along to these people. How did Jesus do it? How did he mentor the disciples? There's a pattern. He asked them to follow him. Leave everything and just follow him. He spent time with them. He did life with them. He didn't just say, okay, you know what? He spent two hours with me and for the rest of the time, I'm going to go do my own ministry. I'm going to go do my own work. No, they spent time together, life. He taught them from the scriptures, from the surroundings, from what was going on right then and there. He showed them practically how to live out God's word. He was perfect himself. So he showed them how to do it. And lastly, he led them. He empowered them. He gave them the authority and sent them out. We see that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, where Jesus sends out his 12 disciples, instructing them in the way they should go. Now, we can always say, right, we too are disciples of Christ. We don't need discipling by anyone else. Because, of course, he is the one. He is the master. But we also need to be discipled by someone else who has been discipled. There is a need to be discipled by disciples. We will look at that 
a little more in detail in a while. But let's think of this. Can we be disciple, can we learn to be disciple makers just by simply reading books, by manuals, or listening to sermons or things online? Do you think it's possible? And, and that is true for any aspect, anything that you do in life, right? Anything that you choose to do. So one question I want to pose to us today. Who is your mentor? Who are you being discipled by? And that is pertinently true. Jesus is the one true master. But if I was in your place, I would have asked you one question. That would be like this. Where do I find my mentor? Because when Jesus was around, he was literally physically there. Surely, yes. Amen to that. The Holy Spirit is someone who resides with us and in us. But even more so, the church, the body of Christ. That is where community comes in. We spoke about the core values, God-centeredness, community, disciple-making. And it's important because they are in a specific order. We must keep God at the center of our lives, go to the big guy. We must love him with all our heart, soul, mind, strength. That's the first commandment. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself, community. You love each other. And within the community, as we do life, we must find mentors. We must find people who will disciple us. And as we do that, we must find people who we will disciple. It's a hand-in-hand -hand process. Look around you. There would be people who would be much more experienced than you, more mature than you in the faith. Speak to them. Encourage them. Ask them if they would like to disciple you mentor you. It's important for us to create an accountability. This is how we all learn and grow. Many of the top business leaders are where they are because they've been mentored by some of the best brains in the world. That is what most of the studies say. That is, the, that is what the autobiographies say. And I'll tell you why I'm likening this to a business. We'll come to that as well. But this, what we're doing here, making disciples is one of the most important things that, as followers of Christ, we can take up. It is the most serious business. And if it is the most serious business, we need training, we need mentoring, we need guidance. It's not easy. So discipleship is not just merely an intellectual pursuit. It's not just reading the book, reading the Bible. Of course, that is very important. Unless we know what God is telling us, we will not know what to do. But it is life on life, like Jesus did with his disciples. As we listen to this, some of us might think, you know what, I'm not good enough to do this, to disciple people. Who am I? I'm flawed. Not good enough. I'm not there yet. Maybe someday I will be. Once I finish reading the Bible cover to cover, once I know it all, once I know all the five books, the first five books of the Bible, once I read to Revelation, once God has spoken to me, you know what, there are people who read the Bible hundred times over. 
But every time you read the word of God, there's always a new revelation. You can never know God fully unless you are glorified and you are with him. Even after spending three years with the king of kings, his disciples, they still doubted. That is what the verse says, right? They still doubted. By Jesus himself. Is that possible? Yes, that's, that, that's happened. For three years, he trained these men. They doubted. Even when they spent three years with Jesus, that wasn't good enough. Fun fact. How many of us have heard of the term doubting Thomas? Yeah? Well, this is how the term was coined, and probably you're right. It's from the Bible, so... Thomas was one of the 12 disciples in the Bible. He wasn't one of the more well-known disciples, but he was popular enough to earn the nickname Doubting Thomas. He was given this label because he simply did not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. We see this in the book of John. Jesus appears to some of the disciples, but Thomas was not with them the first time. John 20, verse 25 says, So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he, that's Thomas, said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where, he, where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe it. Even after Jesus had time and again foretold about his death, his resurrection, he did not believe it. And there's a doubting Thomas in all of us. What happens later? Eight days later, Jesus appears before his disciples again. And this is what John 20, 26 to 29 say. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. This time, Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. That term in itself means that he believed. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. So essentially when Jesus is giving this great commission to his disciples, he is not talking to people who are perfect. He is talking to people who are flawed. Jesus is not telling his disciples, now you are capable, or now you are able, or now you are perfect, so now go and do the Great Commission. No. So what does that mean for us? We are not perfect, and we don't have to be perfect to do this. We can't earn it. Therefore, the lies that we probably believe, that I'm not there yet, spiritually, I need to do a theology course, I need to read the Bible end to end, well, those things are important, but that does not stop us from taking up the Great Commission. And if we look at it further, it's not an option. It's a command and it's a blessing. It is possible only through the power of God in Christ. It's not about our qualifications or qualities, but just about being available. Just about saying, here I am. Use me as I am.
as broken as I am, as imperfect as I am. The second step to being a disciple maker is submit to Christ's authority. Let us look at that key verse again. Verse 18 says, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, now this is interesting, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority has been given. Why would anyone need to give Jesus authority? And what is the all that he's talking about here? I want you to observe these two words, all and given. Let's look at that a little more in depth. In the, book, in the beginning of the book of Matthew, the Gospels, when Jesus had been baptized and the Spirit came upon him like a dove in Matthew 3, 15 to 16, do we know what happened immediately after that? Yes, correct. Yes, with whom I'm well pleased. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And Ma Matthew 4 says this, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil after he's fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus was tempted three times, thrice. And now what we're going to look at is the final time as recorded in the book of Matthew and even in Luke. But we're going to look at Matthew 4 verses 8 to 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you. All these I will give you. If you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. We see what's happening here? The devil in essence is telling him, I will give you authority over what? Over the earthly realm. Verse 8 says, kingdoms of the world. So devil is essentially telling Jesus, the son of God, do not go through the three years of agony. He's telling him, take the authority, bypass the cross. Don't submit to the Father unto death. What did Jesus do? Let's read verse 10 again. Jesus tells him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So what did he do? He resisted temptation. He denied. But here at the end of the book of Matthew, after Jesus has denied temptation, fulfilled his ministry perfectly, going all the way to the cross, Jesus comes to his disciples and he tells them he's been given all authority. Now, here we see that the devil was giving him authority over the world. Who do we think has given him authority now? He died, he was buried. And he resurrected. He went all the way perfectly. He submitted. He obeyed the Father. So God the Father gave him all the authority. What does all authority mean? So we see the devil tells him, I'll give you authority over the earthly realm. 
So if we read our key verse, it says, all authority in heaven and on earth. So now that he was perfected, not, not only does he have authority over the earth, but also over heaven. Amen. So God gave him authority not only over earth, but also over heaven. Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 8 and 9, I really like this. It says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Look at the tense here. It is in the present tense, not past. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Which means that Jesus had, Jesus has, and above all, he will always have all authority in, uh, in heaven or on earth. As Jesus obeyed the Father, to him is given the name above all names. We cannot do this. We don't have to. Jesus has done it. Thus, Jesus says, we go back to our key verse. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. Because I have authority, I'm giving it to you. Now you can go. Not in your own strength. You don't have to be strong. But in my strength, in what I have gotten. Then he gives the command, the imperative. The indicative fuels the imperative. What is the indicative here? The indicative is, because of Jesus' obedience to the point of death on a cross, to him is given all authority in heaven and on earth. We had a home group yesterday and I came up with a funny example. I'll, I, I thought it was good, so I'll share it here. If it's not good, just you know, <laughs> pretend it never happened. Imagine you're a cup. You know, a little teapot. <laughs> yeah, I can see Ezzy doing that. I'm a little teapot. <laughs> and, and another teapot comes and tells you, hey man, pour some water into me. Can you pour water into your other teapot if you don't have water in yourself? So first, we have to be filled. And then can we pour out into someone else's life? The indicative is what God has done. Jesus has done. That's what fills us. That's what gives us strength. And because we have been filled, we can do what he's commissioning us to do. Amen. Was that example good? Yes. Okay, thank you. Yes. <laughs> and the command to make disciples is given to you and to me, not only to the disciples then. We look at that. How the verse brings that out. It is for all of us. Job is not only for the pastors, not only for Nenad, not only for the elders, not only for the church committee, not only for the worship team, not only for the people sitting in the front row, not only for the person standing and giving the message, but for all of us. So as Jesus says this, he's gotten the authority and he's commissioning us there are three implications to this. There's urgency to it. It's the last thing that he said before he departs to the Father. It is a command, like we discussed, not an option. Inexcusable obligation. The King of Kings is telling us this. 
We could be like Moses to say, I can't speak. I'm not fluent. I'm not a speaker. I'm not dynamic. But I have news for you. It does not matter. It does not matter. We just take the load of ourselves. It's not about our qualifications, how good we are. It's not. He will provide. He has provided. He has provided Jesus. There is confidence. There is no uncertainty. Because we've gotten power from the king of all kings. People who are working, imagine you have to go into your CEO's office and without appointment and speak to him. Imagine students, you have to go and speak to your principal without having prior permission. Would you be nervous? No? I would be. Imagine going and telling your principal or your CEO, especially after your appraisals have happened and they're not good. <laughs> go and tell your CEO, hey man, what's up? <laughs> How about some coffee? What do you think his reaction is going to be? Like, get out of my office, man. Get an appointment with my secretary first. Similarly, if you had the charge, let's say from someone who was in authority, let's say, I don't know, maybe your CEO or your principal has committed a crime and the commissioner of police gives you authority to say, you go and I charge you to go and speak to this person. The stance will change. You'll be bold. Walk into the gate. The security guy will say, Kaan jana hai? Hato, mujhe jana hai. Ye dekho. FIR. Ye dekho. I have the... What? The, the warrant. I have the warrant. No one can stop you. Your, your stance, your, your attitude, your voice, everything is going to be different. How does this matter in what we are speaking here? Here, Jesus, who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, is charging us to do this. We are empowered, we are confident, we need not be scared. We need not think that I am not good enough. We have his authority when we do this, especially when we do this. There are many things in life when we can wonder if God will be with me. I'm single. <laughs> Thanks, Vipin. <laughs> Lot of people. <laughs> and thinking about marrying a girl and then you're like, okay, God, should I marry this girl? I don't know. Please speak to me. Please tell me. Those things, difficult to hear from God sometimes. This, not so much. If we are called to be disciple makers, if he's commissioning us to be disciple makers, there is no doubt that he is with us because he said it and he has authority. It's not just some normal man, it is Christ. Third step to being a disciple maker, after we've gotten the authority, after we've submitted to Christ's authority, what do I do? How do I go about it? Follow Christ's pattern. Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20 say, Go therefore. Now therefore is... Why? Because Jesus has authority. Now you can go. Go. Make disciples of all nations... How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe 
all that I have commanded you and behold, I, will, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is a part, pattern of what we have to do. So what is the goal here? It is to make disciples. We have a goal and the goal is global. All nations. When we carry the authority of the supreme of the universe, the God, the creator of the universe, we cannot be small-minded. So I'm a Sindhi. I come from Calcutta. I cannot say, you know what, God, my great commission has to be only for Sindhis or only Calcutta or only Pune because I like Pune or, oh, you know what, okay, within the pin code or within Maharashtra, no. It's all nations, everyone, no discrimination. But you could say, how is that possible? How do you expect me to go to all nations? Am I supposed to fly everywhere? I don't have money. Well, not really. There's a book that came out a few years back which said the world is flat. Where the author essentially says that how the economy is opening up because of various lines of communication, import and export growing, people are flowing in from all countries, flocking especially in countries like India, booming economies. You look around, we have people from different backgrounds, different cities, you have people from different countries within the city, they're all here. So we don't have to look further. It's all here. And when we do that, when we go to all people, that is when God is glorified. Now that we've gotten that, the goal, that the goal has to be global, we've gotten that straight, now let us look at how we can make disciples. There are three descriptive verbs, action words. First one is go. Certainly means action. Go where? All nations. How can we, only a few of us, go to all nations? But wait, Jesus knew this. He was speaking to 11. There were 12, one of them betrayed him. So there were 11 at this point in time. How many do, we, do you think we have here this evening? Certainly more than 11, right? So Jesus knew this. So then how does that make sense? Well, we look at that. You have your circles, you have your work, you have your schools, your colleges, places you visit. That is where you're supposed to go. That is where we're supposed to put this command into practice. As disciple makers, I realize we cannot be passive Procrastination cannot be a part of a disciple maker's life. We cannot say, you know what, I don't feel like being a disciple maker today. I don't feel like sharing the good news today, so I'm just going to let it be. There cannot be a day like that. We have to go. We have to be active. So one question I want to ask us is, who has God placed in your life? In your circles, friend circles, who do not know about Christ, places that you visit, gyms, clubs, work, school, college. Reach out. Go. There's no time like the now. Go. That's what Jesus is saying. Not me. Jesus. The second descriptive verb is baptize them. Baptize whom? Those who have believed in Jesus. 
this is beyond the symbolic water baptism that we talk about. That is certainly an essential part, but there is much more. The first goal here is summarized in the word baptize. Who do we baptize? People who believed. But when we look at verse 19, it says, make disciples. Doesn't say you will get ready-made disciples. Here you go. Take him. It's not going to be that way. We have to do all the hard work. There has to be a process. What is the process? Making disciples begins with evangelism. Have you heard of that word? Wow, again, we are going quiet, man. It's like, <laughs> Ninad, where are you? <laughs> Making disciples begins with evangelism. So once we've evangelized a person who doesn't know about Christ, we tell them about Christ. We disciple them by baptizing them and teaching them. But like we said, it's more than just the water baptism. We have to lead people to obedience. It is a matter of the heart like we discussed last week. The water baptism symbolizes the inner cleansing that God affects when we turn from our sins and turn in faith to God for forgiveness of our sins in Christ, knowing that He alone can guarantee us that. We have to teach them to be followers and imitators. Essentially, this is all that we've learned in our part, in our process of being disciples. We've got to take that and we've got to download that. We've got to help the other person realize and understand that. That is why discipling and being disciple go hand in hand. Evangelize. We plug them into community. We teach them to obey. I was looking at some studies and some studies show that the primary reason that people drift away from church is that they've never had a friendship with anyone in the church. No one came beside them, invested time, effort to build a relationship, mentor them, disciple them. People who stayed, stayed because they had a relationship, because they had friends especially with people who evangelized them, who told them about the good news. The remaining people who left, left because they said they never got to build a relationship with that person. Have you guys ever gone to any shop to buy, let's say, a car or a bike or, you know, something of little value, you know, something that's a little expensive. Let's say, imagine you go to buy a car. A car salesman, right? What does he do? What is his attitude? He is there with you, he's pitching you a deal, and you feel, man, this guy can be my friend, he's so good. But after you sold the car to you, gone, poof. Nothing. As people who evangelize, we can't just be salesmen. We can't tell the person about Christ, now here, pastor, lelo, kaam karo apna, and I'm done. Sorry? Of course, there aren't many, many salesmen, but we need more friends. They feel betrayed, feel cheated, they feel hurt that they view the friend like a salesman. 
we as witnesses of Christ should be friends instead of salesmen. And that is what loving our neighbor means. It's not just about, it's, it's not a transaction. It's a life on life process. We have to teach them. You have to help them understand. You have to make them disciplined learners of the word. Teach them. A healthy dose of the gospel, which will be their anchor all lifelong. That is going to help them sustain. The third verb is teach them. To do what? Verse 20 says, observe all that I have commanded you. Teach them to observe. Teach them to obey. So disciple making does not end when a person is evangelized or becomes a Christian. We have to be faithful all life long with people we disciple. It's a lifelong process. We have to invest our time, our energy. Whatever we get to learn, whatever we know, we got to teach them. What's the scope of teaching them all of Christ's commands? That is what Jesus says. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. What does it mean, therefore? Can we ever know everything that God is teaching us just within the matter of a moment? No, it's a lifelong process. So as we learn, as we grow, we help the other person learn and grow. It's a hand-in-hand process. We disciple as we are being discipled, like I said earlier. As we receive, we give. As we are taught, we teach. However, verse 20 says, teach them to obey. So it's more than just theory, right? Can, t- can someone teach to obey in a classroom? Can you teach someone to obey in a classroom? We can't. It's practical. We have to open up our lives to people we are discipling. And if we do that, inevitably, we'll open up, open up our vulnerabilities, our weaknesses to them. And that could be scary. But that is what discipling is about. That is when they'll see that it is not in our own strength that we do it, but in His strength, in Christ's strength. That is when they'll see our weaknesses, our failures, and realize that it is not us, it is Him who lives in us. We cannot say, you know, I want to have a break from being a follower. I've had enough, I just want to take a break. We can't. We have people looking up to us. So we have to be accountable, we have to stay the course. Look at Christ and stay the course. How do we do it, you ask? in his authority because all authority has been given to him and nobody reaches their God given potential if they are not discipled everybody who spiritually makes it or everybody who is spiritually making it it's a lifelong process is discipled let's, let's invest that time fourth step is take comfort verse 20 he says and, and behold I am with you always to the end of the age To the end of the age, the disciples weren't there. They didn't live forever. So he's speaking to us and the people after us and the people after them. Always to the end of the age. Because he says this, he commissions us that his commission that he's given us of making disciples is our main business. And it's serious business. He is with us. We can always feel inadequate taking up this task and say, I am weak. 
Jesus says, I'm with you. I'll give you strength. I'm not able. Jesus says, I am able. I am with you. Do not worry. I am too small. Jesus says, I am with you. I am the Lord of the universe. He is with us. Christ is greater. But how is he saying this? Just after he said this, he departed to be with the Father. If you look at John 16, verse 7, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I, if I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he is with us in the Spirit. John 14, 15 to 17. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and in you. Who is this another helper? It is someone who is just like Jesus. There are two meanings of the word helper in Greek. One is Another of a different kind and the other is another of the same kind. Here, the author is talking about another of the same kind. means just like Jesus. He is with us in the spirit. Do you know how powerful the spirit is? The gospel of Luke, Luke says that in verse 49, he says, Stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. This is what Jesus tells his disciples. Stay until you get the spirit. Jesus asked them to wait for the Holy Spirit. And when the apostles receive the Holy Spirit on the day of the Pentecost, they were full of God's power. The same Peter who was rebuked by Jesus on various occasions, the same Peter who denied Jesus thrice, when he received the helper, the Holy Spirit, he stood up boldly, bore witness to Christ, and 3,000 people came to Christ that very day. That is the power of the Spirit. And because he is just like Christ. So we are not shortchanged. We are strong in him. Because he is with us. We are not inadequate. We are clothed with power from on high. As Luke says. We have all we need to carry out this great commission. It is his great commission. One sometimes hears this comment, certainly everyone has heard of Jesus by now. Surely missionaries have been sent to every country. Haven't we just about completed the Great Commission? Isn't it enough that I am just praying? Isn't it enough that I am just contributing in some way? I am sure it's been done. While the spread of Christianity has been nothing short of supernatural, there are still a huge segments of the world's population that have never heard of the name of Jesus, let alone a clear presentation of the gospel. Let me ask you tonight, if you'd found a treasure, or let's say a solution to one of the world's global problems, would you keep it to yourself or would you share it with people? Let's say you find a treatment to cancer. A permanent fix. What would you do? Would you keep it? Or do you share it? Knowing that millions are dying every day because of this dreadful disease, I'm sure we would share it. How much more then? 
but some studies show that approximately 40% of the world's population is still unreached. They have not heard of the name of Jesus. People are dying every day, perishing without hearing of what Jesus has done for you and me on that cross and that is serious. What he purchased for us with his precious blood, his broken body on that cross, it was not cheap. He obeyed to the point of the cross, so we must obey. So that we could be one with God. Have we have eternal life? This is the best news we can give to everyone, don't you think? Nothing else compares. Nothing else compares. The true joy of eternal life. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 27, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for this soul? For his soul. We read this last week. The answer to this is nothing. There is no profit in gaining all the world, all the wealth in the world, if you cannot save your own soul. Closing, let us ponder on this. The good news, the amazing news, the best news is this. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Yet we have millions of people around us perishing every day without knowing the without knowing what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I would not have been here if someone had not told me about Christ five years back. And I'll forever be grateful for that. And I'm sure that holds true for many of us. I'm sure why many of us are here today is because someone told you about Christ. Someone told you that your sins have been paid for. Someone told you that you don't have to carry the burden by yourself. He's done it. He's gone before you. My prayer for us tonight is that we do not keep this good news to ourselves. That we share this amazing news with all we know. In our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our colleges. Wherever we go, whenever we go, there is no greater work than sharing the good news of what Jesus has done for you and me on that cross. Why? So that they might know the love of God in Christ and not perish, but have eternal life. That is the central promise of the gospel. And that is why Jesus commissions all of us. The work is not finished until Jesus comes. But we have to take this business seriously. Wherever we go, whenever we go. That is something we can't take for granted. Millions of people dying every day without knowing what has been done for them. So as we close out and love not come and share a few words, I just want us to 
take this and consider it. If there's nothing else that you take away from this, just let it be that one assurance. That what has been done for you can be done for anyone else. All we need to do is share. And it is not an option. It is not an option. I'm sure we have people in our families who do not know about Christ. We have people in our friend circle, in our workplaces, who do not know about Christ. And the thought of them perishing and not having the eternal joy, eternal life is heartbreaking. As we read, multiply lives. I also want us to think about this. Multiply life. Eternal life. That is what we have with Jesus when he comes back in heaven. Let us not rob other people of the chance of experiencing eternal life. It is upon you and on me. It is not only the pastors, the elders of the church, the committee members. Oh, it's not my job. It is our job. Let's reach out. Let's reach out. Let's get going whenever and wherever. Hey, thank you for joining us today. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram at Zealous Pune or visit us at our website, zealous.community, to know more about us.